0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God, do not ignore my plea.
1: Hear me and answer me.
0: Evening, morning, and noon,
1: I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice.
0: Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be be to the the Father, and to the Son, and to the the Holy Spirit, 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 as as it was in the the beginning, is now, and will will be forever. forever. Amen. Amen. Today we deviate a little from the uh, continuous reading of Hebrews. Uh, So last week we did not have a Hebrews reading for the sake of the observation of the Reformation. This week we also uh, deviate from Hebrews because we observe the Feast of All Saints Day. Now the celebration of Reformation and All Saints Day is always a little bit um, interesting to sort of figure out because in actuality, Reformation is October 31st, All Saints Day is November 1st, so we always have to make a decision about which day is going to be honored at which time. So this year is pretty obvious because Reformation Day being on a Sunday, we were going to observe it on its actual day, but it does mean that All Saints Day this year comes in what seems like very late. In fact, it's the latest it can be, and as a result of that, you're always sort of celebrating Reformation really early or All Saints Day really late. Occasionally, you'll hit it so that they're in the middle of the week and um, it makes a little bit more sense, but there's always this tension that exists in the church of which one is going to be closest to the date it's actually observed on.
1: And and we can thank Martin Luther for that, that he chose October 31st to... uh to commit his act of, you know, of public right. confession you know, by by uh, putting the theses on the door at, at that particular day. But as one of the choir members pointed out yesterday, that was certainly very intentional because he knew that that would be a, a day of celebration. It would be anticipating a day of celebration in the church right. and could not go unnoticed. Right. If everyone was coming to celebrate All Saints Day,
0: they would mm-hmm. they would see that he had posted those on the door. Right, everybody would have seen it as they were coming and going. and. Halloween gets thrown in there because Halloween is just the eve of the day of the hallowed ones or the eve of All Saints Day. And so all of the traditions that surround Halloween crop up out of Europe as a result of the observation of All Saints Day on November 1st. And so all three of these things get tied together. Um, In many ways, they mark uh, a time of transition in the church because from this point on, we leave behind the Uh, ordinary season where we get the life and act of Jesus and we get these two special days and right coming right out of that we move into the end of the church year. It's still considered the ordinary season but the readings take a much darker turn. It's about the end of times, the looking ahead to when Christ returns again, all in anticipation of celebrating the new church year, the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, which is four Sundays previous to Christmas, regardless of how that falls. Sometimes it's in November, sometimes it's in December.
1: And I've I've, I've always marveled at the wisdom of of how that was constructed, because you're reflecting in these last weeks on the
0: second coming of Christ, and then, boom, you're in the new church, you're reflecting on his first coming. Right, right, and that always leads to an interesting conversation on Advent 1, because you can either talk about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, the Palm Sunday reading, or you can do an additional week of end times readings. Uh, and the reality is both end up talking about the same theme. It's just a matter of how do you want to emphasize it. But today as we look at All Saints Day, uh, we get our epistle reading for All Saints Day this year from First John chapter 3. And it's only three verses, so Paul, could you read all three verses just in one fell swoop, please?
1: See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure.
0: Thank you. So when John is writing, this seems like an odd choice for All Saints Day. Um, as you're thinking about epistle readings that would work, you might think about you have run the race, you have fought the good fight, or uh, maybe Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Um All the things that we would associate with funerals. I don't know that I've ever had somebody choose 1 John 3, 1 through 3 as a funeral text, but when we look at how All Saints Day is framed, it fits beautifully into the larger set of readings, because the first reading for All Saints Day does not come out of the Old Testament. It comes out of Revelation. It talks about the sealing of the 12,000 individuals from each of the tribes, the multitude that nobody can number, the gathering around the throne, and John asking, who are these people clothed in white robes, are being asked that. And John saying, sir, you know, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And so we get this beautiful revelation reading about what the celebration of All Saints Day looks like in heaven, what the celebration of life looks like in heaven. In the gospel, we get Jesus teaching us the Beatitudes. He opens his mouth and says to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the hungry, so on and so forth. And so what holds the experience of God in heaven with the experience of the Christian life on earth, as taught to us by Revelation and Matthew, what holds those two things together? It's this reading in John. Well, and,
1: and what struck me right away is is the I started thinking about baptism right away right. when I when I saw it because it was um, it ties what well, baptism for multiple reasons. I mean, we're, we're brought in to the church as children of God, but that's tied together at funerals because we have the the pall over the funeral, which is mm-hmm. a reminder of our baptism, and it and it just it all ties it
0: together. Right, right, and so we're getting this experience of baptism, but in in the church we have a phrase where we talk about the now and not yet the present reality with the hope of what is to come and john is going to get us there in his epistle and he's going and he does that at the end of verse 2 beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared What we will be has not yet appeared, but we are God's children now. And so what ties Revelation and Matthew together is that phrase right there. When we look at Matthew, what are we right now? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hunger, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, the experience of the Christian life now, but it's blessed. What is to come is that picture in Revelation. And so holding these two things together is this promise of John. We are God's children now. We are the blessed. And what we will be has not yet appeared.
1: And once again, coming back to baptism, um, uh, I think it's the reading from Romans that appears in our baptism liturgy where um, because we've been uh, 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 baptized into him, we have been baptized into his death and resurrection. And so
0: we, we become one. With with right.
1: And so, again, ties it back into baptism.
0: Right. So as we look at this reading in detail, that's why this reading has been chosen for this Sunday, is it's holding that complex reality of the Christian experience in tension with each other. It's identifying the fullness of the reality we have. But John begins by drawing our attention to what we can see. See the kind of love that God has given to us. And so the example he gives is this, we are called children of God. That's the kind of love that he wants to draw our attention to. He's not talking about other things that are um, hard to imagine or might not be what you're experiencing in the moment, but he's drawing your attention to this very concrete fact, you are a child of God. And that tells us something about the kind of love that God has for his people.
1: And, um, that also kind of reflects back to not just first John, but John,
0: the, the, the the book
1: of John is all about God's love Mm -hmm. for us
0: too. Right. Yeah. John is, is huge on this. Um, and thinking about this, what, what does that mean to have that kind of love to be called the children of God? Well, we know that the love that a parent has for their child is unlike anything else. In fact, Just yesterday, I was talking to one of our congregation members who um, recently found out that he's going to be a grandparent. We were talking about the nature of kids and becoming a grandparent, and he observed. He said, you know, throughout my life, you'd hear about sacrifice and things like that, and he thought, oh, I suppose I could sacrifice for somebody. He said, but I never knew what that meant until the day my child was born. Now, that day, I was like, okay, I would die for this kid. It doesn't matter what he needed, I would put myself in harm's way and I would give up my life so that my kid could live. He said it's a love unlike anything else and he said the love that you have for a grandchild that's coming from that child, he said is even greater than that. He said it's just amazing how that functions and he's not the first person to talk to me in this way about this reality of love you have for children. And so John's very wise, and he's trying to describe the love that God has for his people. Well, what's the kind of love we can all relate to? Even if you don't have children, you are somebody's child. And so what kind of love does God have for you? That he calls you his child, and you are his child. And that comes to us through baptism. And notice there's no negotiation there. You don't get to negotiate terms with God, and he doesn't put any stipulations on it. He calls you his child, you are his child. End of story.
1: There's no decision involved
0: there. Right. It's God calls it, and so it is. And this is bestowed on us in the moment when he gives us his name. And as you pointed out, that ties us to baptism. Uh, A beautiful baptismal moment there. And then he talks about how we are able to see this as Christians, but those outside of the church are not. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. For a non-Christian, much of what Christians do is a puzzle. I try and get the catechism students to imagine that they walk into a Christian church for the first time. They have no experience with Christianity. He so said, at that point, would it be something comfortable or would it be something odd and bizarre. And as they start to think their way through it, they think, you know, the first majority of the service would be like, okay, this is, I can understand what's happening. Until that point when all of a sudden the pastor talks about body and blood and take and eat it and doing this kind of stuff, all of a sudden it would get a little weird if you had no context for that. But for the Christian, even those who don't accept that it is the body and blood of Christ. Even Christians that would see it as a symbolic act understand the importance of what's happening, and they can see it as something special in the midst of that. Um, But to a non-Christian, it's just a bizarre activity that we'd be undergoing, and the reason why they do not know what it is is because they don't know God. You can't understand that. You can't even begin to approach it in faith unless you first know who God is. If you can't understand who God is, you can't understand his people. You can't understand what they're doing. So the reason why the world does not know us, the reason why the world does not understand the Christian church is because it does not know God and it won't be able to understand us apart from knowing him.
1: And it all comes back to identity again. Yeah. Because they didn't understand
0: his identity.
1: They don't understand our identity. Right.
0: Yeah. It's amazing how much identity matters in scripture. Um, given that that's such a, a hot topic for conversation today. And well, Jesus has already talked about this 2,000 years ago.
1: Right, and people haven't changed. It's always mattered to me right. because you 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 divide yourselves into groups you know, according yeah. to, to likeness.
0: Right, yeah. and yeah. by family name and uh, what town you're from, and that all builds on how people perceive you to be who you are.
1: Well, and from Old Testament times, uh, the family that you came from you know whether which background you came from was very much very important in terms of your mm-hmm. belief system
0: right yes and speaking of uh family backgrounds and belief systems that's another beautiful part of what john is doing here he set this up by saying we are children of god and because of that people don't understand us because they don't know god as i was thinking about that i think it's he's he can rely on that experience of joining another family so when you Uh, get married and you start to join another family in their holiday celebrations, sometimes what they do or the food that they eat can leave you puzzled, like you do it, what, how? You eat at that time and you include that on the table, why? And then you get there and the family has a whole depth of story and history that you don't have access to. It takes a long time to become a part of that story and a part of those traditions. The same thing for the Christian church. God has called you his child. Immediately it is so. But there's still a learning curve.
1: And it it reminds you of why maybe sometimes those are very uncomfortable situations Mm -hmm. because you're playing catch-up. right? And maybe that is also a barrier sometimes to bringing people into the churches because we have all these cultures and customs and and an outsider is playing catch-up a little bit. So whatever, whatever we can do to make people feel at, at home and, and comfortable right. visiting us is,
0: is worth a lot. Right. Helping them understand what's going on. When I'm taking somebody through new member classes, one of the things I'll mention to them is it's going to take you at least a year to fully understand what happens here because you have to live everything once with us. You have to know what are the, the contextual events that happen around Easter that are unique to this community and how do we structure it. Because it is different than other places, and every congregation, even the ones closest to us, our Savior, Hope, Redeemer, a Pilgrim, Christ of the Bay, they're within three, four miles of here, and yet they're going to celebrate those same days differently.
1: And you tell them at least a year. At least all, a year. In all likelihood, it's probably longer because it's hard to experience everything. Right. In that year.
0: Nobody has perfect attendance. Um, And so, yeah, it takes at least a year to fully understand what's happening. And then, as we talked about earlier, he now gets us to the Christian experience of the now and not yet. Beloved, we are God's children now. That is our present reality, because he has called us his child, and so we are. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So this is talking about that that dual reality of saint and sinner, that we are 100% saint, uh, declared holy in the eyes of God, and still 100% sinner, fully corrupted and continuing to sin, and it's battling it out right now. We won't reach the fullness of who we are meant to be until that day when Christ returns, and then we will be just like him. Not that we will become a god, but that we will be perfectly holy And perfectly without sin. And that will become the new reality that we have. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as pure. And I think that becomes important for this as well. Because notice John doesn't say, therefore, everybody who works hard becomes pure, or everybody who does these five things becomes pure. Those who have hope, those who have faith, those who believe they will become pure. And so when we put it back into the context of All Saints Day then, we are reminded of Revelation tells us what is going to come. Jesus tells us what is happening right now. And John says, hold fast to the faith because God has made you his child. You are blessed. And what is to come is coming look forward to that with hope.
1: It's, a, it's really a, a, an amazingly succinct way to tie all these ideas together. It is. Um, when I first saw how short the reading was for today, I thought, hmm, um, how much is there? There's a whole lot.
0: There. There's a whole lot there. And I've s- mentioned it before that one of the beauties of the way that the church has organized the lectionary right. is every time you come to it, you see something else. I'll be honest. I've never seen this connection until this year. I've preached these texts now for ten years, and this is the first time I've seen how they're hung together with this verse from Revelation or from John.
1: That's good because there's there's always more layers to uncover right. when you think about it. And then there's the other things that are part of the service, the other readings, the the, um, the psalmody that's brought yeah. into the service, and um, that is that to me is is one of the things that's very exciting about worship is even though you go through this cycle on on an annual basis Mm -hmm. there's always something new that you discover even if even if you're doing some of the same music and the readings from years past there's there's a new light that that shines right
0: i was talking about that with i think it was vicar um earlier this week in regards to psalm 23 when I first started in ministry, Psalm 23 for me was, I, I felt like it was just one of those things that had lost all sense of meaning. It was basically a fancy wall hanging that people had and it was, it didn't ever resonate with me. I'm now somewhere in the ballpark of a hundred funerals and I've said that at every single one of those funerals. Psalm 23 is now one of the most meaningful and depth-filled parts of scripture for me, in part because I've meditated on it so many times, but also because it's now backfilled with all of this sense of meaning about why of all the things that could have been chosen was Psalm 23 the thing that's tied with the celebration of a person's life. And every time I come to it now, it amazes me the layers upon layers upon layers of meaning that David was put it hadn't been able to put into that psalm.
1: and musically it's been set literally hundreds of times and for that same reason right. is it just resonates with 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 so many people
0: and just depending on which verse you're focusing on changes the way the rest of it sits and how it would how you would choose to sing it um because if you're yeah depending on which part of that you're looking at it's going to change the way the music sounds the way you're going to emphasize the refrains and all of those sorts of things. So as we look at All Saints Day, it's not just the readings that make All Saints Day come alive. When we look at All Saints Day, the traditions that surround it, the music, the readings, all of those things come together to communicate the reality of what is being observed and celebrated on that day. So one of the unique things here, we were talking about how um, you have to live life in a congregation for a year to understand the community. One of the unique things for our community is that's the day that we add names to the Vine and Branches Memorial. That's not something that happens everywhere because most places don't have that kind of memorial. Most congregations will read the names of the dearly departed at some point during the service, but how they do that will look different. In what context they do, that looks different. For us, uh, it's, they're put on the on the wall as part of the memorial, but then we also set it into the singing of the Kentucky, this beautiful uh, piece of liturgy that comes out of the Russian Orthodox Church that is this wonderful prayer of thanksgiving for the life that was lived and the hope that follows the death of a Christian
1: right it's a um the, it's a, a text that definitely borrows some imagery right out of revelation mm-hmm. and it's not something that's a standard part of, of the western churches but but yeah the the uh, eastern orthodox church it, um has used it rather consistently and it's something that because it, it agrees with our theology we've can appropriate it and, right. and use it at, at times like this when you mentioned the the vine and branches memorial um, I think there's some churches that if they have an adjacent cemetery will actually do perhaps some kind of right before or after right. the, the service out in the cemetery. Yes,
0: correct. You could go out to the cemetery and do some observation of, of All Saints Day there. <clears throat> and that, that too is a beautiful, <coughs> beautiful testimony that if you have a, a church that's surrounded by a cemetery, is just beautiful to be reminded that you are surrounded by the saints that have come before you. That the church here on earth is never alone, but it is surrounded by the company of heaven um, joining together to engage in in the divine service. So as we look at the things coming up for this Sunday, uh, what have you selected for us to focus in on?
1: It could be um... Kind of a, a hard choice sometimes to decide which things to do, but uh, if we defer somewhat to the to the guideline that our our, our church body has given us, <clears throat> they've assigned certain hymns that are the hymns of the day for the church year, and for All Saints Day, it makes sense to sing for all the saints, which is a, a very well known hymn, and we are going to sing it this Sunday. All eight stanzas, we'll, we'll divide it up um, across the service, but we will sing all eight stanzas. It's hard to, to make the case that any one of the stanzas should be should be left out because they're all such wonderful right. poetry. Uh, our, our hymnal, 677, has eight stanzas in, which has become the, the standard number that's, that appears in most hymnals. Originally, it was 11 stanzas, and the three that are frequently omitted have a lot of the imagery that's contained in the Deum, which is the canticle okay. that we sing at, um, at, at Matins and, and, morning prayer. And it's a hymn of praise with that, that same imagery. So for that reason, just to make it a little bit more concise and, and focused on this idea of saints, the, the idea of of sainthood, um, both here on earth and, and looking forward to the hereafter, those, a lot of, those three stanzas have been dropped, and so mm-hmm. most hymnals have these uh, these same eight stanzas. And the first two, um, the first two focus on the great cloud of witnesses that is referenced in the revelation reading that we get at the beginning uh, of the service. And then stanzas three through six focus more on the experience of the believers here on earth. There's there's a military imagery of of being soldiers. Um, fighting the good fight. And then the last two stanzas are about the coming of of Christ. And it is um, uh, a a beloved hymn that I think I pointed this out uh, many weeks back when we were talking about the author of the hymn, which is William Howe, who was a a priest in the uh, Church Mm -hmm. of England. And um, his other famous hymn, at least famous to us, that is included in the hymnal is uh, we give thee but thine own I don't know if you remember that connection yep. or not yeah so here here are two very well-known hymns to us and known for very known to us for very different reasons he was his work as a as a, a a churchman started out in the very poor slums of of London and so he was ministering to the poor and so that was that was very much on his mind and so we give thee but thine own is is his famous stewardship hymn that, that we still use to this day. But he was also very aware of um, the, the, uh, uh, the eschatological meaning of, of working with the saints here on earth. And so um, looking forward towards the hereafter, he, he crafted this hymn for all the saints. And so it's been, been widely widely used uh, ever since then, from the, from the late 19th century, and then paired with the tune by um, uh, Ralph von Williams, also from uh, um, late 19th, early, early 20th century. We've talked about Vaughan Williams because uh, he wrote a number of other hymn tunes in the hymnal. So I don't want to spend too much time talking about Vaughan Williams right now, but it's a, it's a hymn tune that's just very sturdy and works very well as a processional tune.
0: And we've talked about before, you and I have, that this is such a powerful tune there aren't other hymns that use it because it's almost impossible to separate it from this text.
1: I know of only one other, uh, text that's paired with it that I think is successful. And we, and we've sung it here on the occasion of of confirmation, which I think is kind of a nice connection there too, because at confirmation, you're, you're again, affirming that you're part of this, this, this family.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, um, but, but you're right. So, uh, it, it bears this text, uh, almost exclusively, and even just from a musical standpoint, I've even heard uh, composers remark that it's hard to write uh, music that that uses this, uh, settings of it, in other words, because because it is such a strong tune, um, it has so much character to it. What right. what, what else can you add? What well, else and we've talked with?
0: about that in terms of descants. When mm-hmm. I've played along on this hymn, there are descants that are work that work fine. But i don't know that we've ever stumbled on one that took our breath away we're like oh wow this is the descant for that hymn because it's just so well put together how do you ornament it exactly exactly so that is one of the hymns that we'll be
1: (coughs) singing this this coming sunday uh another one that i had uh, Thought about perhaps uh, t- speaking about today is behold a host mm-hmm. because that is that is definitely right out of our Revelation reading. Right. That talks about the about the host. Um, or Norwegian, it's paired with a Norwegian tune that I've been told is a must have at uh, at ethnic Norwegian funerals. That that just um, is
0: the hymn you you must have. Right. Well, and honestly, because I try and guess which hymn you're going to pick. Rather unsuccessfully, um, <laughs> but I assumed just because of the familiarity with "For All the Saints" that the hymn we'd talk about today would be "Behold the Host."
1: And we'll, we'll find another occasion to discuss that. It, it will. It will present itself. But yeah, um, the the imagery in there is right out of Revelation. And,
0: um, well, and it's and you can also tell that it's a Norwegian hymn because of the way that they describe things the opening line behold a host arrayed in white like thousand snow-clad mountains bright that's not a hymn that's being written <laughs> not not in Italy not in the in middle of the desert yeah <laughs> right
1: yeah, exactly and and uh that's true and and um dave lewis always pointed that out that you could find a lot of imagery of light in in scandinavian <clears throat> hymns and it's not just true of their hymns if you look at their at their art and their paintings you'll find a real emphasis on light and cool colors by a lot of the artists the especially the oil artists that come out of that part of the world because they it first of all that is the type of light that they are they're they're accustomed to that kind of white cool um, light as opposed to um, the the paintings that come out of italy where you have this very golden red, rich type of coloring in their paintings.
0: Well, and because of where they're situated geographically, so much of their year is spent in darkness. The winter months, that that capturing of light becomes so important. Um, The light shining in the darkness means something entirely different when you are in the midst of December in a northern country where it's dark for a majority of the day even here, we start to get that, that there's joy that comes with Christmas lights because it's dark by five o'clock.
1: Right. And with these uh, dark, dark November days where there's, there's not even any snow for what little light there is to reflect off of. I mean, those are some of the darkest days of the year. Yeah. uh, Which I, I guess you could say fits nicely with our end end times uh, focus that we have. It it kind of illuminates, right? De-illuminates that, that that, uh, time of year.
0: That was something else that pastor lures would always point out was, um, how so much of what we do matches what's happening in the world around us. That Easter with this coming to life, the, the rabbits, the greenery and all of that. And he always puzzled, what would Easter look like or Christmas for that matter, look in the Southern hemisphere where the season is flipped, where Easter happens in the fall and christmas is happening in the midst of summer
1: well and and it's no more evident than in our christmas hymns which you know a lot of them do reference snow and especially the english hymns <laughs> <laughs> which uh which make no sense in, in the southern hemisphere right um having said that behold the host will be one of the communion hymns on sunday so you can look forward to that if that's that is one of your favorites um, and the third hymn that I wanted to bring up for today is uh, Blessed Are They, which almost made it into the pew edition of our hymnals, but not quite. Right. They had to make some decisions in, in terms of space of should it go in, should it not go in. Uh, it's in the supplementary materials that I use as the, as the musician, or the accompaniment books um, and whatnot. But uh, Blessed Are They is the setting of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, which is our gospel reading. And... Um, The choir is going to lead it, and uh, the congregation is invited to join along on some of the stanzas as well as the refrain. It's worth taking a a look at this um, um, a little bit more closely. Uh, We've heard the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount uh, many times, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It becomes a little tricky to set this musically and and make sure that you have all exactly the same content. And one of the things I wanted to, to point out, for example, is um, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In the song, it calls it, it it changes the wording to blessed are those who seek peace. Well, a peacemaker and and those who seek peace is a slightly different idea. Right. One is more passive than the other. Correct so it, it's hard to capture that that nuance and then likewise blessed are the meek in the song it refers to them as the, the lowly ones well meekness has many different forms you could be you could be meek in spirit you could be meek in faith you could be uh, uh just meek in in, in mm-hmm. strength right um, and so um lowly is a lowly is a somewhat different idea than, than meek
0: right yeah and it's a uh... But he's using a text there that comes out of the Magnificat because with Mary's Magnificat, we often use lowly in that. And so I wonder if that knowing that he's writing in a Roman Catholic context, if that's what he's backfilling that idea of meekness from is this imagery that comes from Mary's text.
1: Yes. Uh, very often we'll recall other ideas from other hymns and other parts of scripture. Um, no better example than, than Psalm 23, coming back to Psalm 23, uh, we sing um, the king of love my shepherd is, and it talks about um, um, uh, the shepherd bringing us home on his shoulders, you know, carrying you mm-hmm. on your shoulders. Well, that's nowhere in Psalm 23. Right. Where does that come from? Uh, obviously, we have that imagery of the, 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 the painting, you know, right. of, of Christ carrying the lamb. So it come, <clears throat> Excuse me. it comes from without it's not in Psalm 23, but yet it doesn't seem incongruous at all because it's still talking about Jesus as the good shepherd. Well, and
0: it's part of Western Christian culture. You'd be hard, fun, hard pressed to find a Christian who hasn't seen that picture. Well, and there's actually two of them, the picture of Jesus carrying the lamb on his shoulders and the other one of him standing inside of a garden, knocking politely on a door, waiting to see who answers. Both of those pictures are almost ubiquitous and, and traditional Christian imagery, which
1: tells you how important Christian art really is. I mean, if it's hanging in your home, I think it's it's made an
0: impression on you. Mm -hmm. Now, blessed are they. Also, you mentioned that the choir leads it, which is a wise choice when setting, using this piece, because like on Eagle's Wings, each verse follows a different set of uh, syllables and rhythms. To make it work,
1: yeah, you have to fudge the, the verses a little bit. Uh, on Eagle's Wings suffers from that same issue, perhaps even more so, because there, it's, it, it, it's not as, as consistent from verse to verse. And so the choir, the choir leads it. I, I, I believe the congregation has heard it enough times that I that um, for the verses that we are inviting mm-hmm. them to join in, I think they'll be successful in, right. in, in making the syllables fit the melody.
0: Well, and it's, it is intuitive enough that it works for congregational singing. It's definitely not on the easier end of the spectrum, but it, it, it's it got enough, um, like I said, it's intuitive enough that I think congregations can make their way through it, even if you were to sing all of the verses.
1: And of course, everyone is invited to join in on the refrain, rejoice and be glad, uh, blessed are you, holy are you, rejoice and be glad, yours is the kingdom of God, which is not word for word for... A uh, uh, paraphrase of what we find at the end of the Matthew passage. In the Matthew passage, it says, "Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." So there's no mention of the prophets there, but the focus is in 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 kind of the reward mm-hmm. that, that that comes to us uh, and that we are blessed. It's a um, a kind of a, a verdict over the over the faithful that that indeed you know, we will inherit the kingdom of God. It's that that reminder that comes after every verse that, yes, indeed, we have this to right. look forward to.
0: Well, and again, thinking about context within a local community, I will say that the singing of this hymn combined with the use of the Kintakion and the reading of the names are two of the most... Um, significant events in the life of the church here for me uh, that i look forward to experiencing every year um when i think about what are the things that i walk away with remembering year after year after year it's the singing of this the reading of the names in the midst of that that prayer that the lord would give peace to those who are at rest and um especially knowing that um Seeing the vine and branches every single day when I come here, and, and being reminded of all of those who have departed in the faith.
1: For our use this Sunday, we will um, we will treat it as the gospel reading itself, which is a kind of unusual thing because normally, even if you have lay readers in your congregation, the lay reader would not read the gospel reading. It would be it would be right. the pastor. So here we are assuming that role <laughs> right. uh, and, and I, I think it has the benefit of, the, of you get a little bit more deeply into the reading there, Right. So while it may, it may not track exactly, uh, to the, to the translation that we would normally mm-hmm. print there. Uh, the content of it is 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 right.
0: still very true to right. the passage. And you've got to be very judicious about doing that because you don't want to ever sacrifice what the text is saying for the sake of some other kind of event that happens. But this text is close enough um, that we're not sacrificing the text for the sake of of putting in a hymn. And it does fall in line with a tradition that comes out of some parts of the Christian church where the gospel reading would be chanted. Mm-hmm. And um, in those cases, if you have a pastor who can't chant, you would have a cantor do it for you. Um, and so it it does fit into the broader context of what happens within uh, liturgical work in church, um, but it is not something that is widely practiced um, here in the United States. And um, even using this hymn in this way would be something that is almost unique to us.
1: But it's one more way to get a, a very um, uh, meaningful hymn into uh, the, the liturgy on Sunday. So um, I'm going to propose that maybe we sing, um, how about stanza two, because that is the one that mentions the lowly ones. That's uh, on page five. We're using a, a choir edition to, to sing from here. And, and then um, we'll, that'll be followed by a refrain. And then why don't we sing um, stanza four, which appears... Uh, on, on page seven, okay. uh, also with a with another refrain. Um,
2: Blessed are they the lowly ones; they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst. They shall have their fill. Rejoice and be glad. Blessed are you, holy are you. Rejoice and be glad. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they who seek peace, they are the children of God. Blessed are they who suffer in faith, the glory of God is theirs. Rejoice! Blessed are you, holy are you, rejoice and be glad, yours is the kingdom of God.
1: Before we move on, uh, you mentioned the composer just in in passing before. Um, uh, this was one of his earliest, I think, and most successful um, efforts from the middle 80s, um, David Haas, he wrote most of his uh, music during that period, a very prolific period for him. And it's when the the, uh, the Catholic Church was uh, searching for a lot more uh, approachable music like this post Vatican II. And it's said to be in a what's called a, a, a modern folk style. But as, as his music and Marty Haugen's music demonstrates, they expanded that idea beyond just a guitar, mm-hmm. you know, singing in a small gathering to settings where you can add choirs and other instruments. And this is a really good example of that
0: type right. of a piece. And of all of the music that Haas has written, this is likely to be the piece that withstands the test of time.
1: Oh, I think so. And it's, it's the one that's most widely, appears most widely in other uh, right. worship
0: materials. Because just because you write a lot doesn't mean that it's going to be used 200 years from now. This is likely a piece that will stand up to that test of time and become an example of liturgical work from the late 1900s. Yeah.
1: T- time has a way of, of winnowing those things out.
0: Yes. But what he's got going for him is the text that's behind it. Is a text that will clearly stand up to the test of time because it is the Beatitudes
1: and and the ones which which just uh, don't stray from the original text. I think um, help them in that regard right. because if you start adding in a lot of uh, foreign ideas or especially ones that are very of this time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, if you marry yourself to this age, there's an expression right. you find yourself a widower in the next because yes. because you know there's. <laughs>
0: Things have moved on. Well, we encountered a hymn last week uh, that I shared with you, and we'll just share with those who are listening. Uh, there was a new hymn written for the Presbyterian Church that has to do with climate change. Well, it is one that is very clearly not going to last long, because of the imagery that's used in it is so tied to this particular moment—a
1: um, snapshot in time.
0: Yes. But let us pray. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our
1: worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.